Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I'm just doing a quick little intro. It is now Wednesday evening, Wednesday night, the day after the general election. They just claimed Michigan and Wisconsin for Biden. It looks like he has a path to squeak this one out. The episode you're about to hear today is not an election episode, so this is somewhat tangential and just kind of uh, getting people up to date with where things stand with respect to when this episode was released. But that's to say that it looks like the left is having a best-case scenario result from this year election. (laughs) And hear me out. Joe Biden looks like he's going to squeak out a narrow victory against a megalomaniacal, narcissistic, orange TV reality game show host. And this was not supposed to happen. He was supposed to usher in a blue wave. He was supposed to win by 10 points. I myself have been skeptical of the polling like any rational human being for the past several months because the polling let us down so badly in 2016. But here we are. It looks like Biden is barely going to squeak this thing out. The only demographic that Trump performed worse with in 2020 compared to 2016 is white men. Imagine that. We're going to have a lot of reflection to do about the continuing irrelevancy of race reductionism as a narrative for understanding the American political scene. Of course, because Trump improved his voting share with the black population, with the Hispanic population, and with white women, which is astonishing if the only people you listen to with respect to American politics are the people who spend most of their time in graduate seminar rooms. But anyway, just some preliminary thoughts as we look at the exit polling, as we look at some of the numbers that are available right now as of today. It looks like there will be a fight. Trump, of course, is throwing a temper tantrum. He has sued to try to stop the vote in most states, except for the states where it might benefit him, like Arizona, for example. But we'll see if Arizona and Nevada hold strong for Biden. It looks like they will. Who knows? By the time you listen to this, it may all be wrapped up or Trump may have taken it to his cronies in the Supreme Court that he himself appointed. Boy, what a system we have here in America. I just want to break out of the national anthem, don't you? Anyway, I've got a great episode today with Joe Guinan. We're going to be talking about uh, the transatlantic left, where it stands, given the uh, failures of the Sanders movement and the Corman uh, moment, the Jeremy Corbyn moment, of course, over there in the UK. He himself has been suspended from the Labor Party. He may or may not be expelled. It's hard to say. I haven't kept up with it. A lot of shit's happening in the U.S. now today, people. So uh, enjoy this interview with Joe Guinan. He is the vice president over there at the Democracy Collaborative. He is a a voice of of sound reason and steady wisdom in a moment where the left needs a lot of that in ample supply. So I know you guys will enjoy this episode very much. If you do enjoy the episode and you like the things we do here at Dead Punnett Society and you'd like to see more of it, you think it's a good in the world – Head over to patreon.com and become a patron of DPS today. Support the show at a level at which you are comfortable and capable. We have got to build these institutions going into 2022, 2024, and beyond. There is no doubt that there is an upswell in socialist and left-wing sentiment, but it is raw. It is uneven, and it needs to be smoothed out, let's just say, in a lot of ways. And we've got to wrap our heads around some of the challenges of today. And, you know, it's it's shows like this one, I think, that are up to the task. A handful of others as well. Uh, got to build this new left ecosystem. And I know you guys 
are going to understand the importance of that uh, in, in a Biden presidency just as much as a Trump presidency. So no matter what shakes out in the coming weeks and months ahead, we're going to have to build what we started four or five years ago in earnest. It's not over yet. We face some setbacks. No fucking doubt about it. We need to be relentless about thinking through some of those setbacks. But it ain't over till the, till the fat lady sings. And uh, there's far too much at stake to throw up our hands in disgust and walk away, take our ball, go home, and all the rest of it. So patreon.com slash pundits. All right. Enjoy the interview with Joe Guinan. It's a banger. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I'm your host, as always, and today uh, we are striking a somewhat hesitant, if not somber, tone with our message. It is election week, and I have to say that, if nothing else, we have to give a lot of credit to my guest today for joining us to record an episode days before the general election in the United States, where most people are quite snake-bitten when it comes to making predictions or even opening their mouth in public at all or making any public statements whatsoever, even a tweet. It's a very risky thing to do right now, <laughs> to lodge your uh, take into the permanent record, into the discourse, as it were, only days before the election. But we're going to do that. We're going to venture that uh, course today. Uh, joining me on the program is somebody who's up to the task, for sure, a repeat guest of Dead Punnett Society. Always a pleasure to have him. Mr. Joe Guinan, Vice President of Democracy Collaborative, close observer of what's happening in this transatlantic left moment. Joe, thanks for coming back on the show. Really great to be back with you. Thanks for having me, Adam. So as I open the show, uh, we, we, I've got to get your take on something before we get going here, before we really get cranked. That's the, the topic that's on everybody's mind uh, this week. We'd be uh, remiss in failing to mention it. What's your take on the Mandalorian? Is that uh, is that an appropriate extension of the Star Wars Enterprise, or is it uh, is the Baby Yoda thing only for uh, you know is is a Baby Yoda kind of like a, a, a cheap throwaway to to try to expand the the audience? What, what do you take on that? What's your take on that? People are dying to know. I'm a back to the seventies guy, so you have to stick with the original trilogy for me. I'm afraid that's my politics, and that's my 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 Star Wars takes. You heard it here. All right, there you go. Anybody, if anybody doesn't know, Mandalorian season two dropped this this week. Probably one of the only good things to happen this week. Um, everybody, get out there and uh, watch Mando and and the child and Baby Yoda and uh, try to forget about what has transpired. But let's talk about what has transpired. Not only are we sort of in the wake of the Bernie moment and the Corbinite moment, I had you on the show only a year ago to talk about the transatlantic left. I had you uh, on, prior to that, I believe, uh, two, was it two years ago we first made contact, if I'm not mistaken? I think that's right. And uh, we were just at the, the brink of, of the kind of Corbin explosion, Bernie wave moment. Before we get into current events, contextualize all of this for us. I, I like to bring people like you on the show to kind of talk sense. People like yourself, people like Leo Panich, people like Samkin, and people who sort of have the ability to contextualize things and see the broad sweep of moments, whereas you know, a lot of us are, are unable to see much further beyond our noses. Give us some context, Joe. Sure thing. I mean, by thinking back to just talking to a year ago, you know, Lenin's axiom about there being decades in which nothing happens and then months in which decades happen. We've been we've been through a few decades, I think, since we talked a, a year ago. Um, we were in some ways at the 
even if we didn't fully understand it at that point, at the high point of this sort of wave of the transatlantic left, and and it's since broken um, the the Corbyn defeat, heavy defeat over Brexit in in the UK general election in December, the uh, the Sanders campaign running into the sand, the end of sort of life as we know it in uh, in COVID and the pandemic that has rippled across. Uh, the political economy is if we didn't have enough challenges already with inequality, with wage stagnation, with the looming climate catastrophe, and now we're having to sort of recalibrate to this uh, astonishing sort of new era um, in which many things are being revealed. We were told that by the neoliberals that the state was this puny withered thing behind the curtain, but we've torn back the curtain and it's the new Leviathan. And we've seen that the, an unprecedented state response in terms of monetary policy and central bank interventions, in terms of, of, of the degree to which the state has had to step in and prop up the so-called market economy and bail out once again um, uh, financial and corporate capitalism. And to some degree also just forced by necessity to do things that we were told were, were simply not possible. Um, you know, the Bank of England's reopened uh, the overdraft for the UK government. The Federal Reserve's opened the municipal liquidity facility, which it's pretending is is about borrowing uh, in, in the absence of viable bond markets for states and localities. And yet, you know, here we are. And so, you know, this sort of brave, new, dangerous world. Um, and I think we're only, I've, I've been spending a lot of time looking at COVID and looking at what it means and what the aftermath is is likely to mean. And we can spend some time on that if you like. I just think the the magnitude of what's happening at the moment um, is not being understood. And therefore, the, mm. the level of responses that are being proposed are nowhere near adequate to what we're going to see in the sort of cascading effects, the secondary and tertiary effects of uh, of this crisis. Meanwhile, you know, just to keep things interesting, we've got the election this week. Um, uh, I'm sure we're going to touch on that um, and all that that could flow from that. The um, the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn from um, from the Labour Party in the UK. Every day, a new blow. Every day, uh, a new sense of loss and defeat. So I, I'm spending a lot of time contemplating how much we've lost how many lines of defense we need to fall back and, and what we need to do to rebuild from here. Uh, and it's pretty daunting. That's right. And yet just a foreground, and I think you'll be in full agreement with this. We're in this strange moment where nonetheless, despite all of the setbacks, despite the way that, you know, the, the mainstream establishment Democrats and the party have clawed back the narrative from the uh, success of the Bernie uh, campaign, the Bernie wave, Despite the way that the, the, the centrists and, and, the, and the Labor Party, of course, and, and those on the right, uh, have collaborated to claw back the momentum and the heat generated in the, in the height of the Corbyn moment, the raw sentiment, not only in the transatlantic uh, sort of universe, but across the world, is in many ways lining up with a, a really strident left-wing politics. Just at the moment where our institutions are are leaning in, in the opposite direction, and this is a really tenuous kind of moment, isn't it? I mean, it's it's not one that that uh, will lead with any absolute, you know, <laughs> any absolute trajectory towards you know greater glory and our 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 ultimate victory for sure. You know, not to be tele- teleological here, uh, barbarism sometimes you know it doesn't come in with a bang. It's sort of uh, it's ushered in with a whimper, isn't it? That's, that's a very real possibility, and I think that's one that's filling us with a lot of dread at the moment. But, and yet, though, it seems that the material conditions have to catch up uh, to 
the the stale and stagnant and stodgy political institutions and those who are at the helm of them. Is, is, am I being is, is that hope well taken here? It is well taken. And, you know, but I think before we get into the hope, I think it is really important just to to spend a moment with the loss and to acknowledge the pain mm-hmm. and the disorientation and uh, and and the fear um, that, that so many mm-hmm. people are feeling. We, you know, the high tide of our hopes um, has has crested, and we're now reeling back in defeat. Our enemies are are in power, literally, in the sense of a far right international that stretches from the White House to Brazil to yeah. Israel to Italy, etc. But also back in power in our own institutions, um, in terms of the retake of the Democratic Party from the Sanders insurgency, the Keir Starmer as kind of Tony Blair, Mark II, it seems like in in many ways in terms of the strategy and the politics that he's pursuing. And, you know, the experience of of defeat um, is is a difficult one. I was just digging in um, right before um, hopping online with you to... uh, uh, to to you know Christopher Hill and the experience of defeat mm, um, yeah. in the 17th century um, and this you know those great lines from from Milton in Paradise Lost, so shall the world go on to good malignant to bad men benign under her own weight groaning till the day appear of respiration to the just and vengeance to the wicked, and that's where we are. We're in that that sort of that that sort of period of of defeat um, and of the of, of the sort of restoration of the Bourbons, of, uh, of the monarchy returning. And, uh, and so, you know, I understand people's pain. I understand the disorientation. I think it's throwing up morbid symptoms in our left politics as well as across the, 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 the horizon overall. But I do think um, the thing that has happened in the last five years is, is not, is not, has not been reversed, which is a deep structural analysis of the crisis that we face and the development of an economic, a political economic program of democratization, of decommodification, of public-led investment, of, of industrial strategy, of a Green New Deal, of community wealth building, of, of, of de- devolution and decentralization of political power back into the hands of ordinary people and workers and communities. And we, we know what the answers are. We know what the program is. And the problem we face now is, the, is a political problem. It's the problem of of closing the chasm between what we know must be done to, in the face of these uh, multiple overlapping crises and what is saleable politically, and including what is saleable politically in working class communities that should you know, see themselves as the primary beneficiaries of the agenda um, that we have, have developed and the program that we are proposing, and yet have decisively voted against it in the case of, uh, of the UK general election and the Red Wall and and Labour's heartlands falling to Boris Johnson's Tories over Brexit. And we shall see uh, what happens tomorrow, or indeed over the coming weeks, since uh, only an optimist would think everything would be completely clear tomorrow. Um, but there, you know, Tomorrow meaning uh, Tuesday, we're recording this on Monday. This, this may come out on Tuesday or Wednesday. In any case, I, I doubt uh, we'll have any final say, final word on the victor. Uh, so this is still relevant, of course. We may not know uh, until the end of the week, but you know, who's to say? Sorry about that. Just jumping in to clarify for the listener. No, sure. I did. I, I was wrapping up anyway. I think your 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 sense of of hope in in is right in that regard. In that we know what needs to be done, and now it's a political struggle to to build back from the recent defeats that we've we've suffered, and to um, and to come 
to terms with maybe some of the strategic mistakes and errors that we've made that, that need to be ironed out. And, and we need a second run at this thing as soon as possible because the climate clock is ticking down and the pandemic effects are going to be unfolding. And um, the right is certainly not going to let a crisis go to waste and we shouldn't either. Absolutely. It's funny how we, we uh, non-Leninist non uh, leftists always lean on Lenin in times of crisis for, for metaphors, for, for good sense, and for <laughs> strategies. And it's, so you, we've already pulled the, uh, the, the, you know, the 10 years. And, now, we, that, typically that, that line happens when things are, are good, right? You know, sometimes a decade happens. Uh, sometimes it happens in a day, a week, whatever you know, kind of turn of phrase you'd like there. In this case, it's uh, not so good. So it's a, kind of an unhappy context to be bringing up that line. Uh, another is, you know, we're headed back to the library, right? Lenin famously sort of buried himself in the, the London library uh, after some of the failed revolutionary attempts against the czarist, uh, czar, czarist uh, autocracy in, in, in Russia, imperial Russia. But another one would be that, you know, I'm trying to bend the stick in the direction of optimism. <laughs> Whereas it seems like the world is sort of bent in the opposite direction to give people a little bit of hope, to give people just enough hope, uh, just enough sense of the mission such that they don't throw their arms up and just decide to go do something else. Because that, that's, that's the big risk here, isn't it? The big risk is that people see uh, their first major setback. These, these newly minted leftists of, of only just a few years see their first setback and, and draw the, the conclusion that nothing can be done. And perhaps it is better just to sort of withdraw into cynicism and, and hopelessness and, and drown our sorrows in the ways that you know, we're all familiar with. Um, that would be the big risk here. Because I, I first turned to Chris Hill after uh, the the wane of of Occupy, right? Uh, the, the you know the experience of defeat. You know, I had obviously read quite a bit of him prior to that, but it's, it's a lesser known book. And some of the old salts in the socialist movement said, "Adam, you know, you should read the experience of defeat. It's a really interesting reflection on on on, the, on defeat and, and retaining hope for for a better future, coming from a, a place where people were just you know soundly defeated in a really horrific way." And so, you know, I'm reading, we're now returning to that book, uh, you know, it felt like yesterday, uh, but only, you know, seven or eight years later. And this is the kind of ebb and flow of, of the leftist sort of political cycle, isn't it? And, and it just gives, just trying to give some of the younger, less experienced listeners a sense of that context, a sense of the greater picture that we're going to lose a lot. We're going to win a lot. And keeping an eye towards the lo the longer term project is, is going to be really critical. You bet. We should turn maybe from Lenin to D. Ward Hawker, my favorite quote about things. It's it's far too bad um, and far too late for pessimism. Um, and uh, and that's uh, that's where we're at. We you know, the 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 imperatives are to go on. And not just that, though, I think you're right. I think the uh, a scale of this, a sense of the scale of magnitude of the opportunity and the defeat is is really important and, and recalibrating. We've we've suffered some electoral setbacks but we're stronger than we were five years ago. We know where we need to go. Um, and it is possible to build back from here. There has been a wave and an influx of people into, into left politics. And they've been given, in some ways, an extraordinary sort of education in the operation of the states, of the political establishment, of the media, um, that they will not easily forget. Um, and that, I think, arms us um, with... Um, with with a sense of, of of what we still need to do, um, there's that lovely quote from Frederick Jameson about um, we must support social democracy because it's inevitable failure is the true pedagogy of a of a of a genuine left, 
And that's where we're at, I think. We're, we've run up against the limits of laborism. We're, we're seeing the entrenched interests and powers uh, of the Democratic Party and learning that you know, there's no shortcut. In many ways, what was attempted um, on both sides of the Atlantic with Corbynism and Sandersism um, was, as has been described um, uh, by one blogger, uh, as a great leap over the institutions. It was, a, mm-hmm. it was an attempt to, um, to, to, you know, to short circuit what would otherwise have had to have been years, if not decades, of, of hard graft and base building and community organizing and political preparation. There was an opening that presented itself, and we tried to sort of pole vault over, over all of these problems of strategy into an, a, an audacious bid to grab the, the top of the state in two of the most advanced industrial economies in, in the history of the world, uh, very important internationally. And in some ways, what's remarkable is how close we came rather than that we failed. Um, and as you know, I, I was um, I was looking with fear and trepidation at what would have happened if we'd won, uh, since mm-hmm. I really yeah. didn't think we were ready. I mean, if you look at what's being done to Corbyn now in defeat, just imagine what would have happened to the guy if he'd been in Downing Street and COVID had unfolded. Um, and the, the, the scale of the interventions that are necessary and what what would have been the, the reaction of the Conservative Party, certainly not as a loyal opposition, and of the British right-wing media and of international um, sort of opponents and enemies if we'd been in that situation. Boy, mm-hmm. um, so it does give us a chance. Um, and we still are in, in that you know, it's not it's not open ended. Uh, we've got twelve years or whatever it is to to really um, to take the decisive actions that we need to to get us on the right path uh, for for climate change and reducing emissions. Um, but that that does give us you know another shot, maybe two. Um, so we've got to get it right next time, and that includes doing the things that we didn't get right this time, including, frankly, that deep work of political education in our own movement and in working-class communities, which have just been hollowed out in terms of political understanding by 40, uh, 40 years of neoliberalism. People talk about the 70s a lot as, as the parallel. It's not the 70s. I think we're a different, even though the crisis in some ways has parallels and feels the same, that was the crisis of the, of the post-war era and the upswing of neoliberalism. The downswing of neoliberalism is going to look different, and it feels a lot more like the 30s to me, uh, which is a dark and foreboding um, sort of analogy. The 20s, the 20s even. The 20s and the 30s, that's, and yeah. absolutely. And so that's, that's the dark side of, of things. Uh, yeah, perhaps. but it's you know, but the, there was nothing predetermined about um, about the way that things worked out then, nor are there now. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Spot still, on. it's still all to play for. You have to ask yourself, you know, this is where you, I, I like to leave the, the realm of like high politics and highfalutin intellectual and dusty books and the rest of it. And it's like, you know, go back to a TED talk, you know, it's, it's one of those like a self-help gurus who talk about, you know, taking leaps in your personal life. And even if you fail, you still, what is it? You shoot for the stars. Even if you uh, fail, you land, well, shoot for the moon, you land in the stars. I don't know, Joe, I don't watch enough of this stuff or pay enough attention, but you, but you get it. The point is, the question we have to ask ourselves is, despite having quote failed, which meant like, it was it was a long shot and we all knew it, uh, this sort of leap over the institutions, this miracle that we were hoping for that, you know, this opportunity presented itself. These old, these old leftists uh, sort of just showed up on the scene at precisely the right moment. Um, they were not products of their, well, they're not products of our time. They're products of, of, of their time. Uh, dinosaurs, if you will, showing up in Jurassic Park, <laughs> um, you know, the, the Corbin and, and Sanders the way they were and, and, and right at the moment where we needed them. We did not produce them. We meaning, you know, our generation, our, our sort of post neoliberal generation, um, they're holdovers and, um, and it was worth a shot. And you have to ask yourself, are we better today for it 
than we were b- before? And the answer is uh, is unequivocal. Yes. And, you know, and it was, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't land, we didn't hit the moon, Joe, but we landed among the stars is what I'm getting at. <laughs> how's that? How's that for a, a motivational poster? And it's something you got, look, you got to get, got to stay, you got to keep context in, in life in politics and in, in everywhere. And uh, I really agree with that. I think, you know, it's an unbalanced judgment, right? And there's some very interesting questions that need to be teased apart in terms of the extent to which we were defeated and the extent to which we failed. And the things that you, you can't you can't manage your defeat. That's just we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna have another chance, and we're gonna try. And either we will win or we will not. But the failures are interesting. Yeah. The failures over Brexit. The failures mm-hmm. over um, standing up to party machines. Uh, the failures um, over really recognizing what the, the the ruthlessness of the centrist establishment in being prepared to 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 basically sabotage. Um, these projects, and even to to lose uh, in order to retain control um, of these parties and institutions as political vehicles for their careers and their you know clapped out politics and 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 oh, absent economics as far as I can see at the moment. Um, yeah. And just you know some of those failures uh, we should sit with and we should yeah. think about how we do things differently next time. But yeah, right you on. can't um, you can't avoid defeats. It's it's part of the necessary rhythm of. Uh, of two steps forward, one step back. And that's the next foot that needs to, to drop, right? The next shoe that needs to drop is, is you, you contextualize the defeat. You ask yourself, what does this look like in the long haul, in the long run? How, where do we stand in the grand sweep of, of human history, modern human history? But then, of course, the next shoe that has to drop, it's got to be an assessment of the defeat. You have to be re- This isn't you know, a way of, of um, refusing to take responsibility or take stock of those defeats or losses or setbacks or, or miscues. Uh, so that's the next shoe that has to drop. So let's go there. Um, you know, w- what's happening to Corbyn as we speak, what has happened to Corbyn um, is <laughs> greatly reminiscent of what uh, happened uh, to, to Bernie Sanders, wasn't it? Uh, right prior, directly prior to COVID um, uh, in that the, the centrists and the right wing of the party sort of got together. They conspired against him. You know, of course, Pete Buttigieg and Liz Warren and a number of other, you know, actors there sort of seemingly, at least at this point, got together and decided they needed to back Joe in South Carolina. And then there, the rest was history um, in many senses. And so you have a similar kind of similar kind of conflagration of centrist elements and right wing elements inside the Labor Party coming against Jeremy Corbyn to wield the EHRC report quite cynically, in my uh, estimation, against a, a statement that Corbyn had made in response to it. Now, it's important to note that the EHRC report vindicated Corbyn in in many ways. Uh, So it's very strange now that they're using his response to the report uh, as as another way to condemn him. He has been suspended. Uh, Keir Starmer is going to be put in a very thorny position as party leader to determine whether or not he should be expelled following that suspension. There's going to be a legal process. And this is kind of what has been, for those who are following the inside baseball of of this labor dispute, this has been at the heart of this controversy is that on the one hand, the HRC report is meant to be this independent review, right? An independent legal review uh, uh, outside of the sort of party machinations inside the Labor Party. But on the other hand, of course, we, we, it's turned into just that. It's turned into a lot of backroom dealings and, and party uh, hustling and managing of, of you know, um, managing status inside the party and outside the party without putting you into much of a delicate position. You yourself are currently a Labor Party member. Is that correct? 
That is correct. I'm a member of the largest uh, Labour Party constituency party, which is Labour International, the constituency right. that covers the rest of the world. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the labor? Uh, so the answer is yes. I don't want to put you in any position where you have to be accountable, although I, when the time is right, I suspect that you will you will make your decision accordingly as to whether or not to stand with or against this decision. But let's contextualize what actually happened and then let's discuss the, the response. And then we can we can sort of pull back and look into the past, look for hints uh, and, and, you know, moments in time where this could have been otherwise had had labor under Corbyn made uh, different decisions. Let's just say that let's put, we'll play the alternate uh, alternate reality game. But before we do that, let's talk about what actually happened, what, what actually transpired over the past several days. Yeah. So, um, and I really appreciate your um, understanding of, uh, of my need to tread carefully here. Um, I think there's a, an awful lot of bad faith and weaponization and, manipulation cynically of the politics of uh, of this question of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which is a painful and difficult one um, for, for many, many people, including um, Jewish communities um, in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, this has been a, a long-running point of contention and difficulty um, in, in Corbyn's Labour Party. Undoubtedly, um, there have been cases where members of the Labour Party, and let's remember this is a party that expanded from, you know, 150,000 people to half a million plus people. And in, in a political expansion of that size, you're always going to find cranks and, uh, and anti-Semites. And there's a long history of left anti-Semitism. The, um, the socialism of fools, as, uh, as it was once called, uh, based on the, the notion of, of a sort of conspiratorial rather than a, a structural and, and materialist analysis of, uh, uh, of history and, um, and of politics and of, of who's really um, in power and how those dynamics play out. And, and you know, there have been, uh, there have been instances um, of, of horrible anti-Semitism in the Labour Party that needed to be rooted out and dealt with. Um, well, no doubt. I mean, I, I cut my teeth, uh, you know, a decade ago in, in the uh, Palestinian justice uh, sort of uh, you know, community. And, and even then, you know, I mean, even just a few years ago, you go in the comments of a of an article that was rightly criticizing Netanyahu or rightly criticizing the sort of right wing quasi fascist, you know, imperialist, uh, you know, policies domestically and foreign of the Israeli state. Um, and, you know, so you have these justified political interventions and then you have people who were not even implicitly, but explicitly drawing on on uh, you know anti-Semitic tropes, and foolishly leaning into these kind of conspiratorial you know pod people or what have you Soros uh, you know kind of uh, ideas and framings. And so I mean this is this was prevalent on the immature left in in the United States you know very recently. So um, I think we need to be honest about that. This is this is a discussion that doesn't oftentimes accompany. A more critical take on this, and, and maybe leftists in the United States just don't haven't seen it. They haven't been around it. Um, maybe they just don't know. They just assume that people are are woke on anti-Semitism in the way that others are in their in their DSA chapter, for example. But that hasn't always been the case, has it? It hasn't been the case, and even in you know within Labor International, we had a a, a, a real struggle that kind of opened our eyes to the workings and the failings of the party machinery um, in basically unearthing a, a, a kind of far-right entryist uh, Holocaust denier who um, we tried repeatedly to, to bring 
uh, to the attention of the Labour Party machine and were unable to get action taken for, for a good long period. But here's where it gets complicated, because a lot of that inaction took place under the existing party machine that Corbyn inherited. And what we now know, separately from the anti-Semitism inquiry and the events that have transpired recently, is just, but not entirely separately, is, is, you know, from the Labour Leaks document, um, we have seen the extent to which the party machine sabotaged and was was out to prevent um, Corbyn's advance and um, and even was hoping for uh, an electoral defeat um, in 2017, which, of course, we didn't win in 2017, but we surprised um, everybody with the, um, the greatest surge um, in vote share since 1945 of any political party in, in the UK and came far closer um, and, you know, to, may had called that election to crush um, Corbyn and build a, a Brexit-proof majority that would have allowed her to to move her vision through, and, and instead she lost her majority, and uh, and so people were, were stunned by that. But um, but but you know it, it's transpired that um, that there was a, a real mishandling of uh, of the increase in reported cases of anti-Semitism. Um, by the party machine uh, when it was still in the hands of Corbyn's enemies. And in fact, the EHRC report um, to, looks to the improvements that were made and in process. There are still um, things that need to be done, and it would be possible, I think, to to begin to build a, a consensus around uh, how to deal some, with, with some of those things if anti-Semitism hadn't been turned into the political football in quite the way that it has done. And I think it's mm-hmm. deeply distressing and cynical and, um, and must be truly awful um, for, um, for Jewish party members, particularly um, if you're in that odd position of being a, um, a, a you know, party member, um, massively supportive of Corbyn, but of Jewish extraction and having to, to see your, um, your identity um, and your, um, your painful history um, weaponized for sectional um, and factional uh, political purposes. So I think that's, I, you know, there are other people far more qualified to talk about the content of the EHRC report and what should and shouldn't be done there. Uh, what I think we can say is that um, that this is an extraordinary recent turn of events and that it actually leaves the Labour Party on the brink of civil war. And I think that, you know, the, the, again, you know, the, the, these Jewish members uh, of, the, of the Labour left are, 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 are in a sense then victimized twice, aren't they? Yeah. Once from the actual existing anti-Semitism that is, you know, on, on the fringes and the margins and is allowed to fester in Labour Party apparatus, but then twice by these sort of cynical opportunists who, opportunists who are using their identity to wage what is obviously a sectional sort of fight within the party. You know, let's let's talk about Corbyn's actual comments. You know, um, there are pe- have been people who said, you know, he should have kept his mouth shut. It was just uh, poorly timed, whether or not they sort of agree with him or not. That seems to be the line that is emerging. And maybe I'm giving a little too much too much weight to the to the Navarra boys, although they deserve it. And and well, the, the Navarra folks, they they uh, uh not just boys, but uh, they seem to sort of push a line that you know, well, sure, Corbyn was right, but perhaps it just wasn't wise. Do you have a take on that? I mean, th- this is a question of strategy, isn't it? And then, of course, others will chime, others will pipe in and say, "Ah, oh, you Novara cranks, you know, if, if not now, then when we've bit our tongue, we've bit our tongues for this long. And where has it gotten us? You know, it's time for us to put our foot down. And, uh, and of course, now you, then you have all of these very emotional, hyper emotional takes and uh, people are ready to burn their membership cards and 
um, and all the rest of it. Where, where do you stand on all of this, this, this mess? Well, I think if the standard is uh, of, of people uh, being held to um, to never taking actions that aren't wise, then nobody's going to look particularly great um, in, in the course of the past couple of years um, on other issues. I mean, Brexit being just the largest example that we've talked about a little bit in the past, you and I. Um, and, and so in some ways, um, we, we need to kind of step back and look at what what's really happening and what the sort of strategic um, response needs to be. I mean, I'm shocked, shocked to see that politics is taking place in the Labour Party, right? This is, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is to be um, expected in many ways. And, yeah, um, right. and what one thing that does stand out is the the level of ruthlessness with which the storm rights have gone about um, exerting control over, uh, you know, from the leadership over the party and, uh, and the, the ruthlessness with which they've taken action against, um, against the, the Corbynite left, right? Rebecca Long-Bailey um, ejected the, um, the terrible calls on war crimes and spy cops that has further purged the shadow cabinet of any remnants of, uh, of, of the Labour left. Um, and now, um, you know, striking directly at Corbyn himself, um, and, uh, and I think we need to, to, to have a, a, a frank uh, discussion about what this actually means in terms of whether the Labour Party is going to be the vehicle and the home um, for a radical transformative uh, project or otherwise. And historically, I have to say, um, you know, I, I, I almost I see the Corbyn project a little bit like Gramsci saw the Russian Revolution, right? In, in his uh, discussion of the um, of the revolution against capital, like if it had succeeded, it would have been against our understandings of how these things work. Um, and uh, and so I think it's a really open, genuinely open question. Um, and I'm, and so I'm not really taking a position on people who are leaving versus people saying stay and fight. I think a lot of people are going to be making decisions based on their own personal, political, and in some senses, mental health circumstances um, and what they can put up with and deal with and where they want to channel their energies. And I think it's it's probably a moment of, uh, of plural strategies um, that diverging again. Corbynism provided a moment um, where it, it was a sort of umbrella for a lot of competing mm-hmm. visions and theories of change and that could come together around, if you like, a, a sort of minimal transitional program. Um, and uh, and that may not be the case for this next period. And so, um, uh, you know, it's it's far from clear to me, um, like it's, especially since a lot of the talk about stay and fight te- seems to be largely stay and not much fight. I've been very disappointed by uh, the response overall of the socialist campaign group of MPs. Um, I think the trade unions have taken a pretty um, sort of weak line on, on some of this. This is about whether whether the left has a right to exist in the Labour right. Party as a, a significant uh, political force or not. And if you don't if you don't understand that and see that, um, then I'm not really sure how to have this conversation. That's right, but it's it's also evidence to the uh, the efficacy of of this strategy, isn't it? This tact of 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 weaponizing um, a certain kind of cynical anti-Semitism against the most strident anti-racist and anti-Semitic uh, campaigners in in recent Labour Party history. I mean, that's that's just what's so astonishing here is um, the the just the the hypocrisy of it all. I think that even my question, as as you're answering it, responding, my question even presumes that the Labour Party is or ought to be the place where the left 
sort of resides under under this as as this umbrella, right? And as you reminded me, um, that's only a very recent um, invention, isn't it? Um, and and it, that that just very well may not be the case. It looks very unlikely to be the case moving forward that the labor will serve as as such an umbrella to sort of ground a minimal program to to sort of um, organize the British left in in a way that like. You know, I mean, the British left is going to sort of go back to being far more like the the uh, the the left in the United States in the, in the sense that you know we don't have a similar kind of sort of party apparatus to serve as an umbrella, even even to operate inside of as a as a faction um, in the way that the labor left has, has been for since uh, at least Corbyn. Um, yeah, I've been I've been sort of pushing this idea of in and against the Labour Party, right? We, were, mm. you know, the in and against the state was the the famous pamphlet about um, about which McDonald had a lot to say during the you know the the the, the high watermark of Corbynism. It was going to be in and against the the state. Uh, we were all going to go into government together. It would be democratization, etc. I think, you know, the the Labour Party does continue to offer um, under especially under the electoral system that we've got in the UK of first past the post. Um, a very important site of, of contestation. But I, my sense is that we should, you know, that those, those of us who decide to stay in um, should be staying in in a clear-eyed fashion where we are using both channels inside the Labour Party and outside the Labour Party to advance political education, community organizing, local and regional responses, including community wealth building responses by local councils, which continue to gather pace, especially in the COVID context. But, you know, Westminster and national level UK politics is is not the only avenue. There's also, you know, this coming year, um, Welsh and Scottish um, elections. There are elections for the mayors. Um, we're starting to see Andy Burnham, of all, of all people, leading what might mm. become a coalition, a coalition of um of elected mayors and, and and local officials that can can rightly point to um, the way that the national government is is benefiting from Bank of England um, uh, direct monetary financing of its operations and say what about us? Where are the resources mm. we need? We're the ones that are on the ground that are really going to have to be helping to direct the economic reconstruction. Why the hell should that be done from Whitehall and from from the Treasury and from Number Ten? Um, uh, cut us in on the action, and I think that 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 there's a, a really interesting politics there. And of course, long term, we might be looking at the 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 wheels beginning to turn that might result in the breakup of of the United Kingdom. Um, Scottish independence continues to to surge in the polls. Um, uh, another um, in, uh, issue important to my heart, at least, is uh, is Irish reunification, which I think right. is um, is maybe closer at this point than it's been. Um, in many many decades, as a as a as a viable political prospect in the future. Uh, plus, you know, there's the Welsh um, are also beginning to take seriously the uh, the inadequacies of the UK um, government, and uh, and 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 so we'll see what's possible there. Meanwhile, England, you know, we see uh, a, a new lockdown um, uh, being imposed, and finally uh, an extension of the furlough um, only when. Uh, that that lockdown is being applied to the the south and southeast of England, and uh, uh, when it was being applied to parts of the north, um, there was there was no helping hand, um, and so the regional divides within England itself are starting to come forward, and so that's why we're still in this this period of flux and change, in which I think you know just as decades have happened in past months, I think decades are going to continue to happen in future months. That's that's the nature of the conjuncture that we're in. 
there's a legitimacy crisis across the board, it seems, you know, across the, the transatlantic political sphere. And, and legitimation, you know, happens not only in terms of uh, ideology, and, and that's kind of where there's a real ideological breakdown that, that seems to be the most uh, severe anyway in the United States. And, and then um, there's a structural breakdown, a political economic structural breakdown in, in the UK context, wherein it's just not the, the, the model, the economic political model is just utterly broken for the vast majority of people who exist uh, under underneath it and uh, in, in the way that the, you know, these resources are, are distributed or not distributed and um, in the way that, uh, you know, people's needs are met or not met and prioritized or not prioritized. And it's pretty stark there. Um, we'll see. Let's play a game real fast. And I know you're going to hate the game. I'm going to hate the game. The audience is going to hate the answer. Uh, <laughs> the, let's play alternate history because this, I mean, this is, I think this, this can be valuable so long as we understand we're playing a game. It's just the game, right? It's we're, we're imaginings here. What could have been done differently? I think this is obviously a moment where people will step in and say, aha, see, this shows that we should have expelled all of the centrists and the right, right wingers and the, you know, and the remainers and the Ramoners and all the rest of them, you know, when we had the chance. And I think, you know, obviously, I mean, who, who, who could, who could, who could refute, uh, rebut the sentiment, you know, minimally, you know, I mean, that's just undeniable. Uh, that, that people would feel this way at the, in this moment, you know. Look, you know, we we gave them an, an inch and they they took a mile, and, at least in an American idiom. What could have been done when Corbyn was at the helm of the party? Now we do know that the party apparatus was in the middle of all of this when Corbyn was allegedly in charge. The party apparatus was working overtime to sabotage him, so we have to take that into context as well. That his grip, his grasp over the party was not quite as as you know as tight as maybe we thought it was then. But uh, knowing what we know now. What, what could Corbyn have done in that moment to stave off this, this degree of subterfuge? You know, it, it's a difficult question, and I think it needs to be periodized, right? Um, mm. I, um, I think they were in an extraordinary difficult position from the election of Corbyn as leader um, in 2015 uh, through at least until the, the general election in 2017. Um, and in that period, I don't really fault them for, you know, they, they were, they had one hand tied behind their back. This whole thing was a historical accident. I think we've talked about this before. You know, if Eric Joyce hadn't had one too many pints in the parliamentary uh, bar and punched a Tory MP and been, you know, lost the Labour whip. And then there was the selection in Falkirk and the role that Unite played in that. And then Miliband as leader, um, feeling like because the unions helped get him elected over his brother that he had to like in some sense show strength against them and that's interesting by the way this notion that for the soft left and the, the the you know the middle of the labor party has to in some ways punch left um mm -hmm. as, as a, a way of appeasing the labor right and the media and it can't be done and that's one lesson is that you that, that this is the road to perdition and this is the road that keir starmer is on at the moment so anyway uh but 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 that period i i have a lot of understanding of um, it would have been you know, the, the, there were constant attempts at coups and there was sabotage and, and civil war and, and so on. What we had with 2017 was a moment where we could have moved much more decisively against, you know, the, Corbyn and McDonald tried to get, in, or get into party headquarters and their keys had been cancelled. Um, and this was done uh, by the party machine, right, um, in anticipation of a much worse result on that night in 2017. And what, that was the moment, the high, the high watermark um, in terms of, uh, and, and I feel like what we, did, what we got lost in 
was a, a kind of a celebration of how close we'd come rather than um, uh, a sense of what an opportunity that was to clean out the orgy and stables of the party hierarchy. And, you know, there was, there was an installation of a new general secretary. I think there, there, what the other, the, the key thing though, was that the Corbyn project itself was fissured with fault lines um, down the middle. And because it was hunched in a defensive crouch, both sides in, in some ways of that, of that, project were hunched in a defensive crouch and broadly speaking you can think of this as unite momentum or sort of carrie murphy shavis mill on the one hand and john mcdonnell and andrew fisher and others on on the other i mean these are just shorthand terms for you know genuine differences of uh, of, of strategy i don't know if you caught james schneider's um interview with navara the other day but i mm-hmm. thought that was a very clear exposition where at this right. point in time you need to make a choice you you, and, and this is where we get back to Brexit, I'm afraid. Uh, so I'll lose my last few remaining friends um, on, on this. But, um, you know, the choice after 2017 was to try and forge an alliance with the liberals and the centrists, which meant solidifying a remain base, moving in a remain direction. And because what you're trying to appeal to is liberals and remain Tories, what you got to do, as James pointed out, is start knocking the edges um, off of the radicalism of the program. That's one strategy. Astonishingly, it's the strategy, I think, that John McDonnell um, uh, endorsed and, and pursued. Um, the other was really to to make sure that we built upon that third of Labour voters that were um, were Leave voters. The overwhelming majority of seats, of course, were, were Leave voting. And the way to appeal to them was to amp up the left populist program. And to do, and, and that was the way to go. I think that was the only way. You, I, I was, had a very minority view on on this, but I thought we should have embraced Brexit uh, once it happened. I was actually um, arguing um, for all the reasons why we might want a, a left exit from the European Union um, even beforehand. Uh, uh, but once it had happened, um, then um, that was the, the the route to take. And yeah, it was almost impossible to get a hearing um, for that route. Um, and and what that would have involved is really turning out, turning outwards to the movement, turning outwards to the membership, turning outwards from the membership into community and into those uh, into those working class communities that needed to really understand what was at stake and what was on offer. And instead, we played a game of parliamentary maneuvers of trying to cut deals with um, uh, basically a completely uncooperative political center um, that would rather and has rather um, seen uh, a hard Tory Brexit um, than a Corbyn radical government. But that was our choice. We could resist uh, the referendum and uh, and take a Remain position uh, in an attempt to overturn uh, Brexit, or we could have a radical Corbyn government, but we couldn't have both. And so that's the big counterfactual for me. And so many things flow from that, including the ability to, if we turned outwards into the membership and really done work educating the members around the around the economic program and what the opportunities were for um, uh, for a radical program inside or outside um, the European Union. That in some ways this wasn't the be all and end all issue that it was made out to be. Um, and and uh, you know at, at that point you're still going to feel you're still going to run up against sabotage. You're still going to run up against cynical weaponization of uh, of political. Um, uh, claims and, and charges of racism, anti-Semitism, and, and, and so forth. 
but you would be in a much stronger position with your base and um, with your program. And even if you'd been defeated at that point, you'd have been left in a, a better position, I think, than we are now, where people are in disarray. Uh, they're lost and they, they're lacking leadership. And many of the people that we might have turned to for leadership um, are themselves um, a bit at sea. Um, I think John McDonald being a, the best example of that. Yeah, McDonald's certainly not... Uh not the darling that he once was among many of us, I would say in, in a lot of ways. But I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's dizzying. I think what a lot of these people have been through, it's dizzying, isn't it? And it's, it's uh, difficult. It's a difficult moment. Let's turn now to uh, COVID. We've got to wrap up here in just a little bit. Um, you said you've been, you've been talking quite a lot about this. You know, we, we could talk about the, the, the pre COVID context. We could talk about the, the kind of what happened in March and April, uh, the, the rat fuckery that led to, you know, Sanders exit from the the primary. Um, you know, we could think we could thank COVID in some really twisted way for uh, revealing Trump's incompetence, such that he is now ten points behind in, in all of the major polls. Uh, again, not risking any kind of <laughs> uh, any kind of prediction here in in this day, these days before the uh, general election. But um, COVID is now our context; it's the world we live in. And boy, oh boy, has it completely transformed the world in ways that most of us just can't wrap our heads around, myself included. I go out to to downtown areas and I see shops boarded up. I see major chains shutting down. I mean, just the political economy. I see, um, you know, I mean, the the bread lines, the, the way in which a large fraction of people are going on is business as usual and they're just working from home and, and others have, have been um, unemployed uh, since March. Um, some people can't pay their rent. Some people are saving money because they're not eating out as much. It's the, the, the stratification is remarkable, but at, at some point that, uh, that dam that separates the haves and the have nots will burst and there will be a much more generalized crisis. And as you, as you uh, mentioned at the, at the opening here, um, a lot of the, the weapons and the tools that, uh, we had previously used to manage these t- kinds of crises have, have sort of petered out, haven't they, uh, are offering, uh, diminishing returns. You can't QE your way out of this thing. At this point, um, I don't see how they will be able to in, in the way that we did after uh, the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, so give us some of the fault lines you've been thinking through with respect to this this new co- this brave new COVID world we're living in. Yeah, it's a truly astonishing context that I don't think people have fully digested the, the, the magnitude of um, and, uh, and the differential way in which it's landing. Um, and the sort of cascading effects that it's going to have are going to be with us um, for a long time to come. Um, and, you know, at the Democracy Collaborative, we kind of recognized pretty early on that this was a big deal um, and uh, in some ways might take on the sort of magnitude of, um, of, of, of an economic event like the Great Depression. And in fact, we've seen uh, levels of economic impact similar to those that occurred during the Great Depression, but instead of over five years and over five months, um, it's truly been, um, been an extraordinary um, impact. And the, you know, one key thing to recognize is that unlike the great financial crisis of 2007, 2008, uh, this is actually a crisis of the real economy um, and is really intersecting with, um, with real production, with, with, with work, with human need, with health, with, with other systems. Um, and so the, the financialized, you know, route out through QE is not possible um, in the face mm. of the real physical 
um, constraints on on human health and and on on production. And so we we just started- I'm sorry. Let me jump in there. I, I I threw out that bit of slang. QE mean quantitative easing. Spell out exactly what that strategy is for people, and 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 maybe kind of talk very briefly about why it's insufficient for for facing down those kind of more deeply rooted structural crises. I've sort of taken it for granted that. Uh, my my audience is, is operating at a little higher level on this, and, and this is stuff that uh, not clearly not everybody has their heads wrapped around, myself included. I have a very, <laughs> you know, I, I can speak the lingo, but some of the finer points escape me. So maybe oh, maybe man, spell that yeah. out for us. I mean, um, monetary economics is attracts every crank and yeah. gold bug and Bitcoin enthusiast, and we right. could really go down some rabbit holes there. But in very very broad brush terms. Um, you know, central banks create money out of thin air, and that's where it comes from, right? And what we saw in response to the financial crisis was a massive monetary response by central banks. Not only did interest rates drop to uh, historically low levels and stay there, um, but there was a pumping of this new money um, into the economy in a way that propped up the value um, of of existing assets um, and was used to bail out um, corporations and keep the economy on life support. In many ways, um, sort of late neoliberal capitalism was high on its own supply. Um, and uh, the reason that so so that worked when what you were seeing was the financial chickens coming home to roost of speculation and derivatives trading and in some ways it was it was free money injected to unwind the bad bets that have been made in the shadow banking sector and in the um, in, in the economy at large uh, and you could do that in a financial crisis for and and what we've seen is you could do it for a very long period of time mm. we've also seen uh, a, a huge monetary response to covid that has been aimed at, uh, at doing the same thing uh, propping up um, the uh, the value of existing financial assets and of, uh, of of preventing a wave of bankruptcies in the corporate sector, but the problem that we're facing is is one of uh, you know the, there's a there's a, also a labor market effect here of mass unemployment because people can't perform jobs in the way that um, that they were doing before in many sectors of the economy. Uh, there, was, there was a controlled shutdown. People talked about a war economy. It was the opposite of a war economy. A war economy is a mobilization. What we had was an unprecedented demobilization of all but uh, but core sectors of the economy that, um, that were necessary to keep ticking over. Um, mm-hmm. And so in that circumstance, that's really about whether you can get goods and services to people where they need them. Uh, under the constraints of pandemic and of also enormous pressure being exerted on on real systems, um, if all our nurses die um, in, because they've been thrown under the bus by a premature reopening of the economy um, and, a, a, and health systems are, are overwhelmed, it doesn't matter how much money you pump into the the health sector. Um, you're, there are real physical constraints there, and that's the sort of in in very simple terms the sort of the the problem that we're running up against with COVID. And, you know, we started to dig into it and uh, uh, back in March and started a kind of COVID tracker project internally to really get a handle on, you know, what's the best data, what's the best anecdotal evidence and media reports and other things. Um, and what we're, we're seeing as we've, we've kind of followed this is, um, is that just this is a, a, an economic event um, unprecedented in recent modern American history. Um, and you know the, the picture isn't fully clear yet, but it, but but a lot of it is. Um, small consolation: some of the most dire uh, predictions that we had back in March and that others were warning of um, haven't come true. 
um, some economists were um, predicting an unemployment rate of um, of about 32%, which would have been about 52, 53 million Americans out of work uh, in the second quarter. And what we actually got was an unemployment rate that peaked at 14.7% in April and since fallen back a bit. Um, and part of the reason, though, was this premature exit from lockdown and the fail to right. control the spread. Um, and so policymakers made this decision to prioritize the economy over public health and and, and threw people under the bus. And yeah. Those dire is- predictions were grounded in, in the assumption that our government would act to save human lives. And it and, didn't. And it didn't. And, it didn't. and the terrible yeah, yeah, thing a, is that's that- That's a thing to, rem- to re- constantly remind ourselves of, isn't it? Uh, it's terrifying when your when your rulers don't actually um, uh, no. <laughs> mind whether you die or not, as Trump yeah. very clearly feels towards his, even his own supporters, uh, as we've seen in recent events like the Omaha debacle and so on. But right. um, you know, the the other side of this is that despite doing this, by almost every measure, we're still in this deep economic crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen for generations. You know, GDP. Um, there was a prediction of a decline of GDP about thirty percent in the second quarter. That came true. Um, 10% on a quarterly basis, which is an annualized rate of 32.9%. The largest decline since comparable records started to be collected after World War II, right? Comparable only to the Great Depression and its its severity. Um, then, you know, looking at, um, at what the long run cascading effects of that are going to be, 30 to 40% of those jobs that have been lost may well be lost permanently. There is no V-shaped recovery. It's not coming back. Right, and then there's the effects on, on all the workers that were dependent for their jobs um, for health insurance. You know, in July, 5.4 million people who'd lost their jobs had no health insurance in the midst of a global can- pandemic. Uh, right. The the you know that was 3.9 million during the um, the Great Recession, and there was no pandemic that, at that point. Right then, the other thing that's happened has been disastrous like impacts on inequality um, within the economy. And uh, we've seen a surge of poverty, including child poverty. Um, We're seeing um, just, you know, basically the unwinding of of decades of incremental progress in closing the racial unemployment gap, for example, which was still unacceptably high beforehand, but now we've lost the modest gains that we've made in closing that um, in, in a, you know, Again, uh, ten years of, of gains lost in, in in ten months, right? And now what we stand on the on the brink of is is a disaster capitalist Amazon recovery, um, in which uh, swathes of small and medium sized businesses are lost, and corporate and elite control of the economy is strengthened and inequality increases. And this is the the context in which, let's say, as we all hope, um, there is a Biden administration. Um, sort of taking office at the beginning of next year. It's going to be taking office in a in a really cataclysmic um, environment, especially thinking, you know, as as we might about how Trump's going to behave in the if he loses the election and then this because right. of this ridiculous antique constitutional apparatus that we've got in the United States. There's there's the the interregnum, right? And is he really going to do a stimulus? Is he really going to prevent another massive wave of this stuff breaking? Is he really going to prevent uh, evictions? Is he really going to prop up state and local budgets when many of them are on the brink of collapse? And so, you know, the scale of response, the, the scale of the economic impacts of COVID are on the level of the Great Depression. The scale of our response needs to be at least that. And that's not even starting to talk about things like climate change and, and the need to respond to, to coming uh, impacts. And so I just, I'm just terrified um, when I when I look into all this and then look at the 
at the gap between uh, what's necessary and what seems to be politically palatable and possible at the moment. And we lost the best shot we had at responding to this in such an unfortunate way. History's a great ironist, right? We, mm. The programs of Sanders and Corbyn were in many ways the programs that we needed on steroids to respond right. to, to all of this. And, and, and they went down just at the point at which they were about to become most relevant. I think what's been disappointing for me, and this is a little off topic, but now we'll, we'll come back around to it, is, it, is that, you know, um, one thing I've talked about since coming back from hiatus quite, quite candidly to my audience and, and to my patrons especially, um, those are the ones who can handle it, I think, uh, the ones who can handle it in, in good faith, um, is that is the, the speed at which the, this left that we've been building for the past four or five years just receded uh, during the COVID moment. Um, you know, revealing not that, not necessarily that you know being so cynical to to call it a, uh, therefore a paper tiger in any stretch, but but certainly to say that we we are uh, very very tenuously organized, very tenuously uh, centralized around um, uh, a somewhat amorphous agenda, aren't we? And and that um, and that we are a very broad and um, very broad coalition that that seems to have. You know, just not the kind of cohesion that's going to be required to face down the moment that we're in right now. And um, that, that's kind of been the most dispiriting feature of, of the pandemic for me. Um, and, you know, and it, it, a lot of it is kind of like the we're, we're falling prey to the, our, our forms of organization, as, as people have, have sort of said quite provocatively. I mean, uh, Richard Seymour wrote quite a bit about this in the, the Twittering machine um, and some other, uh, you know, critiques of, of, of our technological forms of existence and organization if the internet if the internet disappeared tomorrow would there still be a left right i mean how, how much of this is organized i mean it, i mean maybe the corbin left could could ask itself the same question um now it, it you know the, the internet and, and that those types of new forms of organization pr- provide a, a, a number of um, advantages no question uh but on the same token um the the lack of real kind of material concrete bonds in society has really shown itself in the midst of this pandemic in a way that we all knew. I mean, we all know that we, most of us don't know our neighbors. We all know that most of us aren't organized at the community level, even if we might be organized at the national level. This is where but, to go next, right? This is right. I mean, I, the thought I'd started that maybe I didn't finish earlier with, you know, the historical accident in many ways of Corbynism and Sandersism. We talked about these dinosaurs being available to us. You know, we suddenly needed leaders and we reached out and we, we got these relics that had survived through the neoliberal period and just happened to be at hand. But in many ways, we, we were doing things ass backwards. I think that's the technical term. Um, and, you know, we, we were trying to grab these higher levels of the state and then in some ways reverse engineer the movements that we needed to, to build the politics. And, and it didn't work and there's no shortcut. I mean, again, the, the same old question of um, of, of uh, defeat versus failure. And the real failure to do the deep organizing, I think, is the, the points to where we go next. No matter what happens on Tuesday um, with the presidential election, no matter what happens at the national level with the UK Labour Party, there are things that we can do today and tomorrow in community um, and that are even more necessary and even will be even more widely understood as necessary um, in response to the COVID pandemic and economic crisis, in response to inequality, in response to climate change. We, we need to be out articulating that program at the local level, in communities, in cities, in regions, 
arguing for this, making it happen where we've got local level power. There's a, a far more, you know, interesting opportunity in the United States, even than in the United Kingdom, because um, uh, states and localities under the federal system do have a lot more power. Now, they're also um, very constrained um, financially, but, but that means that we need to use what resources we've got even more creatively and make those those local public sectors do double and triple and quadruple duty. Um, and that means procurement spent in a different way. It means really looking at what anchor institutions do we have and what if we add them all up, uh, does that mean in terms of how much of the local economy we can actually control and redirect? And there's a huge opportunity um, for political education around what's really important at the moment, but also a huge opening even with big institutions like America's you know, nonprofit hospital systems are looking at at the disaster of personal protective equipment in COVID and the fact that all that stuff in pursuit of lowest unit cost over decades was was outsourced um, to, to China. Um, and then when the crunch came, wasn't available. And all that sort of so-called efficiency um, savings, uh, you know, it, they disappeared in, in a very short space of time. And so you're now seeing hospital administrators saying, you know what, we need to produce this stuff locally we need to know that we can rely we need to bring back those overextended global supply chains back on shore and that could be the basis for an industrial strategy and the creation of you know, millions of well-paid jobs in in, in new forms of manufacturing and, and but all as you know that's also that resonates highly with with right-wing populism as well yeah. doesn't it? which which, well, which pre- presents a challenge i mean I, I don't disagree with anything you've said but i do i do i do agree i mean i think that 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 raises the 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 demand uh, to an even higher level of responsibility on our on our shoulders, because if if we can't address that 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 utter obvious you know the other other o- obvious nature of that inadequacy, then then the right will and a right wing populist sort of very I mean Tucker Tucker Carlson would be more than happy to step in and acknowledge the uh, the the contradictions in the supply chains right that have emerged in in the COVID wave, but it's certainly not going to be a politics that is amenable to the left or the people that we we represent and, and we need to protect. The- Right. It's just a great danger, right? Our clothes could get stolen here um, by a yeah. populist right that's yeah. willing to do it. And are we really going to counterpose to that um, a sort of warned over centrism that that yeah. looks back to the glory days of, of neoliberalism under under um, Joe Biden and, and Keir Starmer? And how do we think that's going to play out politically if we mm. if we try that route? So it's it, you know these heterodox solutions are the ones that um, that are going to be able to carry us forward. And they can be done by us and they can be done as part of a transformational program of inclusion and of rebuilding of democracy. Or we're, we're going to face basically some very dark versions um, of these things that will make mincemeat of centrism, which has simply nothing to offer. And its its economic model is entirely redundant pre-COVID, but certainly in, in the COVID and post-COVID context. Terrifying. But... All to play for, and we got we we got you know cohorts that are educated in in the last few years. We've got the right ideas. Um, a lot of it really now comes down to political struggle. That's right. That's right. A great note to end on, if not a, a somewhat foreboding one. But uh, the cha- the challenges are clear, and uh, we're either up to the task or we're not. And uh, the, the, the world will continue. <laughs> Spinning on its axis either way. It's up to us, isn't it? So, Joe Guinan, thanks so much for offering that context and uh, giving us a, a, a way forward. I, I don't know that uh, either either you or, or myself are going to feel any better after this chat, but I suspect that uh, our audience will. And and you know, I, I, we lean we lean on you heavily for 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 that uh, 
to, to get our bearings right in moments where we feel unsteady. So, so thanks so much for providing that. Uh, again, you are the uh, vice president at the Democracy Collaborative. Come back on real soon here once the dust settles after the election, after the inauguration, perhaps to talk about uh, some of the things that you guys are up to over there at the at the collaborative. That'd be great. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah.